We find ourselves once again in Romans 8. This morning we're going to be looking particularly at verses 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Some ways I wish somebody else had to preach these two verses. Here we go. As I as I told somebody before hand, if I get all done with this message this morning and you all think I'm heretical, you can rebuke me. I prayed over this. I, I, I looked at these words individually. I pondered this. I prayed more. I pondered this. There's just no question about it. These, these are two difficult verses in some ways. There are some very clear things, but there are some very difficult things in these. What's difficult is to know exactly what's going on here. But let me tell you this, in the, in the overall bigger picture of Romans, I want to tell you something. We'll, we'll touch on Brother Charles' Sunday school class. He talked this morning about the fact that we have a breastplate of righteousness. I think the conclusion of the matter was that we can draw confidence in what Christ has done for us in giving us His righteousness, justification. We can also draw confidence from what He does in us as He conforms us to the image of Himself. And I think it's the later that Paul is actually working at us in Romans 8. He is showing us the operations of the Spirit in the life of the believer and in those observations, He would have us assured that where we see those things, we indeed belong to Jesus Christ. And in belonging to Him, the certainty is that if God is for us, no one can be against us. If He's for us and in This, we see that the Spirit of God is confirming our sonship as sons and in the confirmation that I have a part in the cross. He's not going to spare anything else on my behalf. I mean, basically, if the Spirit of God who demonstrates these first fruits in my life, I'm assured of this. The love of Christ has me and isn't going to let me go. And if I've got the first fruits, I'm going to have the end fruits. And the end fruits is the fullness of the inheritance. Folks, there's glorification here. So here we go. We're going to dive into this. Likewise, 
Okay, now I couldn't even get any further than that. Paul, what do you, what, like, like what? I mean, this begs our attention. This word could be translated similarly, in like manner, in just the same way. What's that there for? Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit helps us in our weakness like what? Similar to what? In just the same way as what? I mean, this seems rather abrupt and almost out of place. Because if you read the flow of the verses right before it, 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 it kind of comes at us without... It's like, Paul, where, where are you coming from here? I mean, if he'd have just said, hope brings us help. And in like manner, the Spirit brings us help. Well, we'd all say, God, Paul, you make... You're making sense here. But he doesn't do that. There isn't anything about help in the verses that precede this. You're kind of left scratching your head. You know what it seems to me he's doing? Is he's not so much saying likewise in the sense that we're helped. He's saying likewise in the operations of the Spirit. Let me explain this a little bit. In Romans 8, 2, the Spirit frees us from the law of sin and death. Now, sin operates according to a law. And I'm not talking commandment here. I'm talking principle. Like the law of gravity. How does sin operate? Well, Romans 6.12. It seeks to manipulate me in my body. It seeks to reign in my mortal body. And you know how it seeks to do that? It seeks to cause me to submit to sinful passions. That's how it works all the time. It leads to death, 623, all the time. 7-5, it stirs sinful passions so that when I'm confronted by the law of God, it only arouses more wickedness in me. That's how sin works. It's a principle. Lay it down. The Spirit of God comes along into the life of the Christian and sets them free from that. They're no longer bound to the operations of sin the way they once were. Romans 6.14 says, I'm no longer in dominion to this sin in my life. I'm free if by faith I'm in Christ. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 2 Corinthians 3.17 That's the first thing. Second thing in Romans 8.4 now, that's one thing the Spirit does. Another thing He does, those who walk according to the Spirit fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Those in the flesh are hostile to God, He says. They don't submit to God's law. They cannot. But Christian, you are not in the flesh. You're in the Spirit. You do keep the requirement of the law. And I'm not talking in a legal sense like Charles was emphasizing. I'm talking in a practical sense. This is exactly consistent with what God said He would do under the New Covenant. I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes and be careful to obey My rules. So the Spirit frees us and makes me a slave to righteousness. Romans 6.18 The third thing, verse 13. If you are a Christian, the Spirit of God dwells in you. If He's in you, then by the Spirit you will put to death sinful deeds of your body. The Spirit always puts a man at war with his sins. 
forth. Verse 14 says the children of God are led by the Spirit. Clearly there's a connection with verse 13. The Spirit actively leads all God's children to holiness, to actually putting to death what dishonors God. The Spirit takes charge of our conscience, desires, longings, understanding, molds them to the Word of God, and leads us through them. You see these operations? Fifth. You see it in verse 15. The Spirit of God is a spirit of adoption. Right? He moves powerfully upon us to produce a cry. Abba, Father. He gives us the recognition that God is our Father, no longer some distant, far-off God, but there's nearness, there's familiarity. The Spirit works in us to produce a love and an endearment so that when we rejoice or fear or need help, our hearts compulsively go out to our Father. Verse 16, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. We somehow hear in the Word, in the singing, as I ponder the Word, as I, and most specifically as I ponder the cross, the Spirit of God works in me a testimony, a confirmation that I am a Son of God. Now, what happens though, as he talks about sonship, he wants to guarantee us that in that inheritance there's also suffering. Now we looked at that last week. From verse 17 through 25, he kind of digresses as he's developing these different works of the Spirit, he digresses a little bit to deal with suffering. But then in verse 26, the Apostle now says, Likewise, I mean, it seems he's coming back now to his string of operations of the Spirit in our life. Just like he did all those other things. Just like he compels us to cry to the Father. Just like he bears witness. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our infirmities or in our weaknesses. Now, Paul sees these various workings of the Spirit as massively important for us to recognize. Now I want to step away from Romans 8.26 just for a moment, and even out of Romans 8, and look at the broader context of the, of the teaching of the Spirit of God in the New Testament. Look. The Lord Jesus Christ makes a statement that in my estimation is simply astounding. Speaking to His disciples on one day in what is known as the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus said this in John 16, Nevertheless, I tell you, speaking to His disciples, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. Now, none of us need to be in a quandary at all about who the Helper is. In John 14, 26, Jesus says the Helper is the Holy Spirit. Same one Paul's talking about over there in Romans eight twenty six. Now, get your arms around this thought. 
Jesus is saying, truth is, it's better, better to your advantage. It's better for me to be gone from you and for you to have him with you than for me to be with you and have him gone from you. Better? I mean, I look at, how could it be better? How could anything be better than having Jesus right here with me bodily? How can life be better when my Savior is taken away from me? But I'll tell you something. I'll tell you this. I believe it's very obvious that that early church did find it to be better, and it still finds it to be better this very day. Peter on the day of Pentecost glories in the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says in Acts 2, 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This excited Peter. The gift of the Holy Spirit was a big deal in his estimation. But here's the question. Why? Why was it a big deal? Why was Peter so quick to tell people about this gift? What's the significance in this? Why is it to my advantage? Why is it to your advantage? To have Jesus gone and to have the Holy Spirit come. I'm going to give you one answer. Only one. Power. Jesus told His disciples in Acts 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The church of Jesus Christ. We, we need to understand this. This is why... We cannot accept impotent churches of Jesus Christ. We cannot accept impotence in this kingdom deal, folks. Look, the church of Jesus Christ was literally birthed into the age of the Holy Spirit. Into an age of power. And this is the age we ourselves find ourselves in right now. Listen, this isn't just an age for back then. This isn't just an age that you read about in the books of Acts. This is the beginning of an age that exists up till today. We are in this age of power. This age of the Holy Spirit. There are at least 250 or more references to the Holy Spirit in our New Testaments. In these pages, we literally see the church swimming in the power of the Spirit. Spirit-given gifts flourishing in the churches. Men and women suddenly aware of supernatural boldness enabling them to evangelize and proclaim the glories of Christ. And you have demonstrations of the Spirit and power attending the preaching of the Gospel. Radical transformations are taking place in the lives of all sorts of sinners. Jesus Himself. You know what He does in the midst of that? He promises Christians in this Spirit-permeated age that they would do even greater works than the ones He Himself did. When you talk about another astounding statement, 
John 14, 12. This is all due to God's empowering presence in the person of the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus said His disciples would be clothed with power. Can you see why Jesus might call the Holy Spirit a helper? The naked power of God rests in this divine third person of the Godhead. And He's sent here in order to use His might on our behalf to make us more than conquerors. Now, look, the title helper in and of itself implies power. If I want to carry this pulpit around the room, I'm not going to go over and say, little John Haney, would you come over here and help me? Now look, you, you might have your children help you do something, right? And you might let them join in. You might even look at them and say, ah, oh, there's my little helper. But you know it's in word only. You know it's in word only. Real help requires real power. And no matter what else might be said, one clear advantage to having Jesus go and the Spirit come is the magnitude of real power let loose in the church of God in the person of the Spirit of God. Now here's the thing. In Romans 8, Paul has an agenda. He always did. I mean, he's going somewhere. He's always trying to do something to help the church, to get, build our hope, build our confidence, build our security, make us stronger, build our faith. That's what he's about here. He's working off the premise that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. Now you may say, I know that sounds a little more like Ephesians than Romans, but even though he doesn't say it specifically like he does in Ephesians, he's building off the same concept here. He's building on the same premise here. Follow what he's doing. He's been talking, you look at verse 13. He speaks there about life. If you, by the Spirit, do that, you live. Being heirs, being glorified, verse 17. About a glory that is to be revealed to us or in us, verse 18. The redemption of our bodies, verse 23. And here's his line of argument. If you have the first fruits of the Spirit, and you see that in verse 23. He speaks about the first fruits. What are the first fruits? All these things I already listed to you. All the operations, the evidences of the Spirit of God working in you. If you have those, then they're just that. They are first fruits. The Spirit is the guarantee that the later fruits are coming. Paul wants Christians to rejoice, take comfort, feel with confidence that the love of Christ has taken hold of them, which is proved by the operations of the Spirit in them. And look, if Christ loves us, nothing, nothing, nothing will ever separate us from that love. He makes statements like, if God is for us. And that's what, we, that's what He means us to see in these demonstrations of the Spirit in our life. God is for me. And if God's for me, nothing can come together. Nothing can come against me that's going to pluck me out of His hand. Nothing's going to take me out of this love. This, he, he wants to establish the security of the believer in all this. 
He wants you to be able to see that the Spirit is powerful in the life of a Christian. Paul has no concept of the Spirit of God in a person's life with no evidence of it. I mean, you let a wild lion loose in your house. You're going to have some evidence of it? You think he'll just sit quietly over in the corner and I'll never know he's there? What is more powerful? This wild lion or the Spirit of God? I mean, this is his whole point here. He wants us to literally rejoice and soak this up that we are built on a rock. We can't be swayed off this. So now Paul says, likewise, I'm going to give you one last, at least in Romans 8, one last manifestation of the Spirit. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Another way the mighty Holy Spirit of God invades the life of the Christian and this is, it makes it radically different from all others in the world. And what is it that he does? Okay, well so far, you know, that's all pretty good. I don't think I'm going to get any charges of heresy, right? But now let's dive into the, the next word. The. We'll move on from there. The Spirit helps. Now we see that. There's help here. We see weakness. That's obviously our weakness. We see prayer in which we do not pray for what we ought. We see the Spirit interceding. We see groans. We see Him who searches the heart. We see the mind of the Spirit. We see intercession again for the saints according to the will of God. These are the things we see here. Now, we can do one of two things with these verses. One of two things. We might say this is a description of what the help of the Holy Spirit accomplishes in the Christian's life behind the scenes. It's real enough, but it's just not something I experience. Sort of like when Jesus intercedes for me. I know it happens. I believe it happens because I read about it in God's Word that it happens. But I don't have an immediate experience of it. You know what's happening in heaven. It happens between the Father and the Son. I can't see it. I can't feel it. And I only know it, not because of sensory means, I only know it by the fact that I'm told that it happens. We might lean towards seeing the help of the Spirit here in verse 26 in the same way. The Spirit delivers intercessory groans to the Father in our behalf. I'm not aware of it when it happens. I only know that it does happen because Paul right here in this verse tells me that it does. So in other words, these two verses describe facts that I should believe, but they really happen outside of my own perception, so I should never expect this to be something I experience or feel for myself. Sort of like justification. Can't see it or feel it, I just believe it's so. That's one way to view this. The other way would be to see these two verses as a definite first-hand experience. 
where powerful intercessory motions of the Spirit come through my own groanings. This isn't behind the scenes. This is working out right in my own heart. I'm the one doing the groaning. I feel this. I experience this. And in my own groaning, the Spirit moves upon me in such that His mind, in conformity with the will of God, ushers out of my heart in groans that, contrary to my initial ignorance in not knowing what to pray, are now right in line with the mind of the Spirit. It's observable. It's identifiable. It's something I can know and recognize actually happening in my life. Do you see the difference? Is this the Spirit doing the groaning, which I'm insensitive to, or is this the Spirit working a groaning in me that I'm aware of and feel and know personally in my life? I am arguing this morning for the second option. Romans 8, 26 and 27 describe real life Christian experiences where the Spirit acts upon me. It's a subjective, tangible, mighty manifestation of the Spirit that touches me right where I live. I think it's very important to emphasize this because we live in a day and an age, especially among Reformed folks, where we like to move the Spirit of God right out of the picture of practical experience in life. And that's true. It makes people nervous. It makes people uncomfortable. They don't like it. There's a fear of the supernatural today. And there ought not to be. You see, the very indication that we ought to be different than the world and that there ought to be a supernatural element about us is the fact that this Spirit has been poured upon the church. So I don't think we should fear here when you hear this. Now look, that doesn't mean that absolutely there aren't some things that God does that are out of my sensory perception because that indeed is the case. But I don't think we have to out of fear of the supernatural immediately run in the other direction. So, what makes me feel like these are our groanings? Well, first, you know what? Every other first fruit of the Spirit listed in Romans 8 is personal, subjective, and works out practically in my life. Every one of them. Every one of them are observable. Now listen, doesn't that fit into the very nature of what Paul is seeking to accomplish here? If he's seeking to establish assurance in God's people and build hope, it doesn't do any good to describe an operation of the Spirit that I have no recognition of. You see, the whole point in all the other things he says is if I can look and examine and see those things in my life, I know if I can look and see I'm putting sin to death in my life, I can realize life. Not that I have life because I put them to death, but because they go together. The one is the proof of the other. And I believe he's in the same vein here. If all of a sudden we say, well, no, this isn't something I experience. Well, then you're suddenly taking Paul out of his whole train of thought. So I think that's the first reason to believe that this is actually our groanings and not solely the groaning of the Spirit. Notice I say solely because he's obviously involved in it enough that he can sign his name to these groanings. The second thing is, 
because, I believe this is our groaning, because Paul talks this same way in Galatians 4.6. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read the text to you. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Now, who cries? It sounds like the Spirit cries, does it not? Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Who does the crying? Right here in Romans 8.15, you see clearly it's us that does the crying. Well, why does Galatians make it sound so much like it's a cry of the Spirit? Well, because He inspires it. He motivates it. He compels it. And so it can be called His in the sense that He is undergirding this whole cry. But it comes out of us. It's Him working in connection. I believe that's the same thing you have here. Yes, verse 26, it seems on the surface to read that these are groanings of the Spirit. But I believe in the same way that, that Galatians 4.6 presents the cry of the Spirit. It's ours. Because we have a parallel text in Romans 8 that tells us it is. I believe that we can, we can base on that same principle. The third thing is help. Right there in that first phrase, it says the Spirit helps. Now look, there is a word in the Greek for the help that comes and delivers. Or the help where I am totally without any ability whatsoever and somebody rushes in and rescues me. The word help here is not that one. The one here specifically has the idea of one laboring and another comes along not to take the whole burden, but part of it. It's that picture. The word specifically has that meaning. To help bear a load that is already being carried. Now look, it only, it, the verb shows up only one other time, but you get the feeling for it. Luke 10.40 Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. Because, because that word help seems to indicate I'm in this thing and he comes along and help me, I, it paints the picture of a joint effort. That's why I believe the groaning is a joint concept here, besides the other reasons that I've already given you. Fourth, let me give you another one. The groanings are too deep for words. Now look, this seems to indicate distress that surpasses one's ability to communicate. Surely the Spirit of God has no such lack when it comes to communicating to God the Father. We do. He certainly doesn't. Fifth, notice verse 23. Paul seems to be referring to something he's already mentioned. It's not like groaning is an all-new concept here in Romans. Just three verses earlier, there is groaning, and it's the groaning of Christians, not some secret groaning of the Spirit. So it fits well with the context to see Paul 
enlarging on that groaning he's already mentioned, not in introducing an entirely new concept. Sixth, you have verse 27. Why does Paul refer to God there as he who searches hearts? I believe the reason is this. Our hearts, our hearts, the Christian's heart, is the theater in which this whole scene plays out. Jesus Christ intercedes for us in heaven perpetually holding the merits of His sufferings before the Father. The Spirit, on the other hand, intercedes for us in our heart by inspiring and influencing our groaning so that they are actually Christ-exalting groans. Okay. I believe that's a solid case. I believe Galatians 4, 6 is enough to convince anybody. I believe the train of thought here in Romans 8 is convincing. I believe these other things as well. I believe the theater. He, why, was it, why in the world would he mention he that searches the hearts? It's not like Paul just randomly throws thoughts out there for the sake of it. Everywhere in your Bibles where God is described as him who searches hearts, it's searching the hearts of men. It's him looking in there. Where the groans are, he's examining. And it's right there he's finding the mind of the Spirit. He's finding the Spirit doing an operation in those groans. Now look, here's another thing I'm arguing for. That this happens in the context of suffering. Paul has been dealing with suffering. That's the first thing. I mean, that, That's the first reason I would say I believe this is the context of suffering. Because he's been dealing with suffering in the context. Second thing, we have groaning. The only time their people groan is when they suffer. Third thing, weakness. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now look, it's true we're weak all the time. But in 2 Corinthians 12.9, you know about that text where Paul is talking about the thorn in the flesh. When he talks there about weakness, when Jesus says to him, my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul responds with, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. He's not specifically talking about general weakness. He's talking about these specific infirmities that come into his life that cause him suffering. And he says, look, I'll glory in those things. He's, he's specifically looking at sufferings. Fourth, not knowing what to pray for. Think about that for a second. You know, now listen. It doesn't say we don't know how to pray. It says we don't know what to pray. Jesus assumed that we would pray and know how to pray. Right? When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. And the thing is, it's not even that in a general way we don't know what to pray for. Right? Brother Craig. And I, this came to my mind as I was putting this together on Wednesday. He prayed, Lord, send labors into your harvest. Didn't you? I, didn't, I wasn't making that up. Well, look, did he know what to pray? Yeah. Why? Because we're told in the Scriptures to pray for that. I mean, it's not like we don't know what to pray for all the time. 
you know where it really tends to bring us into a place where we don't know what to pray as we ought? When suffering comes. Because what's our typical response? Lord, get me out of it. Take me away. I believe that's the idea here. We don't know. The suffering comes. What's our first response? Lord, make it stop. Stop, Lord. Show me the door out. I need it to end. So look, here's what I'm saying. This is basically the picture that I'm wanting to put together for you. I believe the groaning is ours, though inspired by the Spirit. I believe that this happens in the context of suffering. I believe it's experiential. Here's, here's, let, me, let me try to put the whole thing together. Weakness. Suffering. Specifically. Though we're weak, generally yes. But in very specific ways, when suffering comes on us, it just magnifies that weakness. And, and it comes upon us. And in that weakness, the Spirit is there to help us. And He does help us. And this, is, this is how I believe that this help works out. Boom! It comes upon us and we don't know how to pray to it. I, I can't tell you how many Wednesdays. Sickness. Disease. Turmoil. Tragedy. Tribulation. By the way, well, Lord, I'm not going to chase that rabbit. Think about it. Wednesdays. Those things are spoken. And what, is it? what does everybody pray? Heal them. Deliver them. Take them away. You see, I think it's right in that kind. But especially when those trials are coming upon us, our tendency is not to pray what we ought to. Because immediately we want a way out. But is that always God's will? In fact, is that usually God's will? Clearly it is not. I mean, you, we saw it in the verses before this. Verse 17 all the way through 25. We see no word there that our sufferings would be diminished. Only that the glory that we're to have is not worth being compared to it. What we have in Christ is not worth comparing to these sufferings. No word about them being diminished. So what happens is they come upon us and we don't know how to pray as we ought. But the Spirit is there. And again, I want to emphasize, I believe the theater of this is in the heart. It's God who searches the heart. And in the depths of our heart where there is a lack of ability to pray right in the suffering, the Spirit of God intercedes right there, right on that level. How? In our groanings, our groanings that surpass even articulation, that go beyond, He works those groanings in the depths of our heart. And I'll tell you this, every suffering in your life brings groaning. They go together all the time. What's He working? He's working in such a way that God, who is the searcher of the heart, looks in there and finds the mind of the Spirit in those groans. Where there was ignorance on my part, He comes and helps me 
in accordance with the will of God and so molds and refines and burns His very image into those groans that they're acceptable. And listen, God the Father always says yes to the Spirit. God says yes to God. And it's a movement upon our very person. In fact, in some way to make those groans actually groans that He is very much pleased to answer. Now look, I'm going to try to give you several illustrations of this as I end. The first one I want, to, I want to throw out at you is our Lord Himself. And I realize I walk on holy ground here. And I even went back and forth as to mention this. But I want to because I think sometimes our view of Christ is wrong. I think sometimes we deify His humanity and, and we don't like to admit the weaknesses that He really took upon Himself when He forewent the glory that He had with His Father and in becoming man, in becoming a servant. But listen, we even see something. Now how much I don't want to say, I'm just going to throw it out for you to contemplate. But Christ Himself is pressed with suffering. Pressed in the garden. And in the midst of His weakness as a man, He says, Father, if it's possible, again, it's that thing under suffering. Take it away. Take it away. Father, remove it from me. You say, wait, it says groans that are inexpressible. Oh, folks, wherever there are words, it's the tip of the iceberg. Who but the one who suffers knows the real groanings of the heart? And in this, the depths of his groanings, there is a total acquiescing to the will of his Father. Have your way in this. Paul, the thorn, it sticks him. I don't know what it was. I don't know if anybody does, but him and maybe people that lived in that day, we could surmise. But you know this, it caused him to suffer. Father, take it away! Was that not his first impulse? I believe you see this manifestation of the Spirit in His groans. There is out of glory in my weaknesses. You see, I believe what's happening in the Spirit's operations is a Christ-magnifying groan. I mean, I've, I've, I, I was thinking about Adoniram Judson. I've been thinking a lot about him lately. You know what they did with this guy? When he was in the Burmese prison, they hung him upside down at night by his feet. Not just dangling straight down. They hung him so that his head was on the floor and that was it. And it wasn't just touching on the top. It made his head bent sideways like this. 
Imagine, every night, that's how you had to sleep. Hung by your feet with your head at 90 degrees from your shoulders. They'd walk him to the bottom of the feet, bled. Hang him upside down, and they kept him in a prison right close to the swamps. And the mosquitoes would come in at night on his bloody feet bottoms and land there in masses and bite on him. Now you can imagine what groanings in the man's heart. How many times, Lord, take me. I came here to Burma to preach your gospel, not to sit here and starve away and be tortured away in some prison. Deliver me from this. You know what he said? It is possible, he said this to one of his fellow prisoners. It is possible my life will be spared. If so, with what ardor will I pursue my work? If not, if I die here, His will be done. Again, I emphasize, you are seeing the tip of the iceberg. When a man suffers, the, I mean, whatever a man is able to put into words, there is such groaning in the depths of that. This same Judson, when he was dying, the last four days of his life, he said, how few there are who die so hard. But he said concerning this death, I go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from school. I feel so strong in Christ. I believe what Paul is doing is painting a picture again of something real and experiential in the life. That in the midst of our sufferings, the Spirit of God, although there is initial ignorance, the Spirit of God begins just like that cry, Abba, Father, he begins to impress his own mind in those very groanings where those groanings become conformed to the very will of God Himself. This is not abstract, untouchable stuff. This is right in line with everything else he's saying. And he's saying, look, if in the midst of suffering, down in the depths of your heart, look, I'm not saying that every groan of the heart of a Christian is always acceptable to God. I believe this is right in line with everything else. He stirs cries to God. That doesn't mean we cry the same and with the same vehemence all the time. It, means, it says by Him we kill sin. It doesn't mean we kill it with the same fervency all the time. It says that there... the we're set free from the bonds of sin. But it doesn't mean that we're always free in the same degree and there aren't times when sin assaults. It says He bears witness. It doesn't mean that witness is always as strong, always as frequent, always as, as influencing. It's the work of the Spirit. His way among His people are in degrees and seasons. It varies. It ebbs. It flows. But it's there. It's real. It's experiential. There's something in those groans deep down in our heart where the mind of the Spirit is seen by the Father and they're accepted. He helps us in our ignorance. He doesn't leave us in our ignorance. He takes us out of it. He helps us in the groans of the suffering. 
I believe that's the picture here. I believe it fits with everything he's saying. If you really come to grips with why is God searching the heart? Where are those groans coming from? He's interceding in such a way that in those groans there is a reception of the Father. Brainerd. I mean, the guy, listen to this. Thursday, October 8th. He was in great distress and agonies of body. For the greater part of the day was much disordered as to the exercise of his reason. The pain was so great it was affecting his reason. He told me, this is Jonathan Edwards speaking, it was impossible for any to conceive of the distress he felt in his breast. Distress. Impossible to conceive. Can you imagine the groanings going on inside this man? He manifested much concern lest he should dishonor God by impatience under his extreme agony, which was such that he said the thought of enduring it one minute longer was almost insupportable. The disposition of his mind, though, and not only of his mind, but you know in those groans, with regards to death, appeared still the same that it had been all along. He said to those then about him that it was another thing to die than people imagined. Being asked how he did, he answered, all my desires to glorify God. From time to time he spake of his being willing to leave the body and the world immediately. That day, that night, that moment, if it was the will of God, now, I throw this at all of you because I believe what Paul's doing here is he's giving us another reason to rejoice, to be able to look at our lives, to be able to understand that the love of Christ has enveloped us. There's help in our groanings and there's help in our sufferings and I believe it's real help. I believe it's something... You know what? I, I can't help but think about Ruby's sister Maida when she got cancer. She didn't know whether she was going to live or die. She went through such agony during those times of chemotherapy. Typically, she'd get her therapy on Monday or Tuesday, and the full brunt of it would kick in by Thursday. You can imagine in the pain and in the weakness the groans that went on inside that woman. You know what she said after that was all done? She regretted it was all over with and she was healed because on those days when she was weakest, God came to her. And in the midst of her suffering and in the midst of her groaning, there was an acquiescing and there was a joy and there was something God did in her agonies and in those groans that made her actually desire them afterwards. And I guarantee those of us Christians that have suffered and suffered the most, we can identify with these operations of the Spirit. I challenge you to study this on your own. You look at it. You come to your own conclusions. I just tell you this. I really believe if you make this an abstract deal that happens behind the scenes, you've missed the whole force of these two texts. Amen.